get this one out. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end no dark is right because their words have forked no lightning. They do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Well, it's a poem by Dylan Pont Thomas, the Welsh poet, as he faced the death of his father. For Thomas, grieving the loss of his father was to take up arms and to fight an enemy that came and robbed us of life and happiness, to rage against the unnatural intrusion of death. Today we're dealing with the difficult subject of grief, the sense of loss we feel particularly at the death of a loved one. But not only that, it could also be the loss of health as old age overtakes us, the loss of shattered dreams, broken marriages and relationships. They all involve grief. And I want to acknowledge that as we begin, that you may be grieving in any one of these ways or other ways as well. We'll be focusing more on the grief that comes from death robbing us of someone we love. But the same kinds of feelings and suffering that grief brings may well apply to you or someone you know in one of these other areas as well. As Pete said last week in relation to anxiety, I also want to start with a disclaimer. I am no expert on grief. I don't claim to have any answers to know how to work through grief from a psychological point of view. My aim this morning is to present some thoughts about what the Bible has to say about grief. And what I believe God wants to tell us about how he provides for our needs when we are grieving. Let's come together and pray. Father God, as we deal with a difficult subject, we pray for your spirit to be at work. Please speak through me. Please speak to, to each of us and give us words of comfort and of hope and of confidence. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's where we're headed this morning. If you've got a bulletin with you, we've got an outline there or you can just follow up on the screen. I've got three points that, uh, that you, can, you can follow in our outline. The first one, the rightness of grief. That to grieve is a right, God-given, natural response to the evil of death. Number two, that there is a threat that grief can bring. A threat to our relationships with other people and a threat to our relationship with God. And number three, the end of grief meaning the place where God would lead us in grief. And that is to show us that he is walking with us through our grief. So let's, let's jump into it. Our first point, why is this not working? 
the rightness of grief. Dylan Thomas was right. Our instinct to rage against the dying of the light is right. Death is an unwelcome, unnatural intruder. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, Marshall, death, surely death is perfectly natural. What about the life cycle? You're born, you, you, you grow old, you die. Well, that's the way that we've come to think of death. It's constantly around us. It seems so natural, but it isn't. Because it's not the way that God intended things to be. In Genesis 2 that Pete talked about last week, the man and woman lived with God in the garden, in harmony. There was no death, no evil. That all came in chapter 3, when the man and woman rebelled against the Creator. They did the unthinkable, the unnatural thing. And that brought dreadful, unnatural consequences, including death. You see, death is a sign that things are falling apart, that things are not as they should be. What Dylan Thomas was raging against was how death breaks in and crushes potential. It destroys dreams. It tramples on hope. He instinctively knew that that's not the way that things are meant to be. Joe Biden, the former US Vice President, was interviewed on TV about a tragic personal loss that he went through. He had just gone to Washington before he was Vice President to be inducted as a senator when he got a phone call from home. An emergency worker told him on the phone that he needed to go back home straight away. He, he pressed them to, know, to ask why, what, what was so urgent. There had been a terrible accident and his wife and daughter had been killed. Here's what Biden had to say about that day. My God, I was angry at everything. I was angry at God, just angry. To rage, to be angry, to cry out, no, it's not right, it's not fair. That's how we instinctively respond to death. And we find in the Bible that God says, yes, that's a right response to the ugliness of death. And we're going to look this morning at Psalm 88. The writer of the psalm is suffering grief. It may not be the grief of death, but it is certainly the grief of loss. Loss of friends, loss of security, isolation. He starts off on a fairly positive note. Look at verse 1 with me. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. There's a recognition at the beginning that God is his hope. He's the one who's going to help him and to save him. But the rest of the psalm is pretty dark. There's a raw honesty. Look at verse 3. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. Verse 5, I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. Unlike a lot of the Psalms, there's no silver lining to this Psalm. There's no happy ending. Look at the last verse, verse 18. You have taken me from, my fr from friend and neighbour 
darkness is my closest friend. And the thing with this psalm is that isn't just that there's no silver lining to it, that it's dark. The writer actually also shakes his fist and rants at God. Look what he has to say about God, to God. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends. It's your fault, God. You've done this to me, he says. He's angry at God. He paints a picture of God that isn't very attractive. God is more like a hunter who has him in his sights rather than a loving father who protects him. Look at verse 15. From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. What we're seeing here is the cry of grief, raw, honest and utterly realistic because that's what grief is like. It's not sugar-coated. The Bible doesn't edit out the hard bits to make God look good. This is real life and sometimes life is cold and cruel. When Owen died, sitting in the waiting room of that hospital, as Julie shared a moment ago, there was nothing to soften the news that came from the doctor. Negotiating the cultural and language differences were often an exciting challenge to us, but not now, not at this moment. They just put a gnawing gulf between us and anything that could be a comfort to us. No one to reach out to. Nothing that could fix the numbness and the pain. And it seemed to us at that moment, not even God. The fact that Psalm 88 sits right in the middle of the book of Psalms as a part of his word, God's word, tells us that God sees our cries of pain and grief to be important. He's not phased by them. He knows that it's a natural, even a right response to the, to the existence of death and evil in our world. The story of the Bible is peppered with the raw cries of pain from some of the most godly saints. Job, David, Jeremiah, Habakkuk and even God's own son, Jesus. For God, death isn't something to quietly accept. Not a natural part of life that we should embrace and even celebrate, as I've heard some people say recently. At one point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus had a good friend named Lazarus. Lazarus got sick and died. Now, Jesus was very close to Lazarus and his whole family. And as he went to their house, he was greeted by his two grieving sisters. One of the sisters, Mary, confronted Jesus as he approached the house and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In the NIV translation, John, the author, goes on to say this. John 11, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, 
He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Unfortunately, the English translation doesn't actually do what Jesus, what John says justice. It doesn't capture the tone of what John was saying. The original language carries the idea of Jesus being angry, angry at, at death. He raged. He raged at death and the misery that it brings. God's own son understood that grief to cry, to rage, to rant at the unfairness and evil of death. They are right and natural responses. And so I want to say, if you're in the middle of grieving now, perhaps the loss of a loved one, a miscarriage, a loss of health, or something else, having room, having permission to grieve is so important. Our culture doesn't do grief well. We encourage people not to cry in public, to put on a brave face. And in the church, people can be pressured to put on a spiritual face, to say things like, well, I really miss my mum, but God allowed her to die for a reason. When we really want to say, no, it's not fair, God. It's not fair of him to have taken, away, taken her away like that. Or to say, my life sucks and I can't bring myself to sing songs of praise in church at the moment. Psalm 88 reminds us that if that's where we're at now, we should be free to express that. To God and to each other. And for the rest of us who want to support those who are grieving, please give them room to grieve. Let them know it's okay to be angry, to only see the dark clouds without the silver lining, to only see, and when it comes to knowing what to say, less is usually more. That is, we're often better off saying something small like, I'm so sorry, than trying to offer a spiritual answer. When people in East Asia tried to comfort us after Owen died, they were, they were very well-meaning, um, but often what they said wasn't at all helpful. Things like, God had a reason for taking Owen, or you need to trust that God knows best. Yes, both of those statements are true, but at the time it's not what we needed to hear. So there is a rightness to grief. It's the appropriate response to the evil of death. But my second point is that there's also a threat that grief can bring. Grief can bring a threat in two ways. Firstly, it threatens to drive people away from us when we're grieving. As I said a moment ago, we're not good at dealing with death. When something is wrong, we want to make it right. We want to fix a problem. We want to be able to pat our friends on the back and say, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. But we can't do that with death. We can't bring back our loved ones. It's so final. 
And so when someone close to us suffers the grief of a loved one dying, we're at a loss to know what to say and what to do. C.S. Lewis, the well-known Christian author, suffered the loss of his wife and wrote about it in a little book called A Grief Observed. He has this to say about the reaction of others. An odd byproduct of my loss is that I'm aware of being an embarrassment to everyone I meet. At work, at the club, in the street, I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds what they're going to say, whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate it if they do and I hate it if they don't. Julie and I became painfully aware of the same thing. It was isolating and hurtful when people avoided us because they didn't know what to say. Sometimes at church and other places people couldn't avoid us but would avoid saying anything about Owen's death or how we were going. It was all smiles and pretense that life was rosy. I would do anything I could to avoid those people. So I want to encourage us and I include myself in saying this. Get over the embarrassment of not knowing what to say to those who are grieving. Please acknowledge their loss. Because it's for, that, for, for people grieving, it's the centre of their world at that moment. It's all that they can think about. I, even if your words are fumbling and you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, get over it. A heartfelt word and a hug can make a huge difference and help just a bit with that yawning sense of loneliness and isolation. Secondly, grief can threaten to push, a, push us away from God. I'm oh, not quite there. We saw in Psalm 88 that the psalmist blamed God for his grief. Job and Jeremiah, two of the most godly figures in the Old Testament, at different points also accuse God of bringing misery and calamity upon them. I made the point before that God gives us permission to cry out in our pain, even if that cry of anguish involves blaming and accusing God. Because one of the things that God wants most from us is our honesty. He knows what we think before we even think it. It doesn't surprise him or shock him when we are angry with him. God would much prefer that we are honest and open with him in our pain than put on a spiritual mask and pretend that we're full of praise and thanks when actually we're a seething mass of anger. Being honest with God isn't a problem. The problem can come when we lose sight of God's goodness. Grief can do that because it can be so hard to see through the fog, through the darkness and see signs of God at all. Have a look at the beginning of Psalm 88 again. Got it on the screen. Verse 1. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out to you. The one ray of, of light in that whole psalm, the one little thread that the psalmist holds on to, may not seem enough, may not seem like much, but to the psalmist it was enough. You see, even in the midst of the darkness, when all he can see is the pain of loss, his friends taken away from him, he's now isolated, alone, feeling the weight of evil weigh in on him. 
even in the midst of that, all that experience is framed by his knowledge of God as the one who saves him. And that's the key. God is still with him. God is still good, despite what he seemed to have done to him. And he holds on to that truth like a drowning man clings to a life raft. Job, right in the midst of his rage against God for bringing calamity on him and being his enemy, clings to what he knows to be true of God despite everything that's happened to him. In the middle of his suffering, even as he's saying that he's going to take God to court and he's going to win the case against God for being unfair to him and afflicting him without reason, has this to say. Job 19 verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. But it's so easy for grief to lead down a different track. Grief can threaten to drive us away from God. Paul Tripp, the Christian author, tells the story of a young man suffering grief. We'll call him Jim. Jim got to the point where work became too much for him. So he quit. He quit his job. This is what Tripp has to say. That left him with only one reason to leave his house, church. He began arriving late for church, so he slid into the back row without having to talk to anyone. And then he would leave during the last song. But this didn't last long. After dressing for church one Sunday morning, he sat down on his bed to put on his shoes, but simply lay down instead. Going to church only left him feel more ashamed and discouraged. So he didn't go that Sunday or any Sunday thereafter. He was left not only feel, uh, with not only overwhelming and debilitating fatigue, but an empty life as well. He had no reason to get out of bed. Now he came to see Paul Tripp as, a, as his counsellor. Uh, Tripp goes on to describe his conversation with Jim. More and more, Jim thought about God and the meaning and purpose of life. But rather than letting what the Bible says about God help him interpret the overwhelming circumstances he was facing, he let his circumstances redefine his view of God. How could a loving God let this happen to anyone? In his endless and dark conversation with himself, he finally concluded that if there is a God, he was not good or worthy of his trust. And that's the danger of grief, to let the darkness reshape our picture of God and push us away from him. The alternative is to allow God into the picture, which brings us to our third point, the end of grief, meaning the place where grief can lead us, the place where God wants to lead us through grief is to him, to show us that he is walking through our grief with us, that he is holding on to us, even carrying us. Now, what I don't want to say at this point is that God, is the, God being the end of grief 
means that he takes everything away. He takes all the pain away. That he somehow makes all the hurt and loneliness disappear. That we can pray a prayer and then life becomes joyful again. That's not what I want to say. Grief takes time. It can be a very long time to grieve properly. And there's no shortcutting that process. To try to do that, to try to shortcut that process and force someone else or force ourselves to sing songs of thanksgiving before we're ready to sing them or to tell people to move on while they are still deeply mourning their loss, that can be very hurtful and guilt-inducing, even harmful. So please, don't, please understand that what I'm not saying is that God takes all the hurt away as some kind of magic formula. What I do want to say is that knowing that God is with us, that he identifies with us, that he holds us through our darkest hour, is enormously helpful and is something that can make the difference between us coming out the other side in one piece or not. When Owen died, it was during Chinese New Year, we were part of a very close team doing university ministry. Now, our whole team had scattered to take a couple of weeks' holiday. Um, going back home after Owen died, as Julie shared, we felt desperately alone. We called our team members, probably the next day, I think, and they dropped everything and travelled many hours, cut short their holiday to come back on the train, to, be, to come back and be with us. That was an enormous comfort to have friends there walking through our grief with us. And when we're in the midst of grieving, it's enormously helpful to know that our Creator is there with us. And not just looking down at us from a distance. Here, present, able to identify with us in our pain because he himself endured pain. In the book of Isaiah, it describes Israel's future king, the Messiah. We now know him as God's own son, Jesus. This is what Isaiah said about Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus knew what it meant to be isolated. He knew what it was like to be an embarrassment to others. He knew grief. At the end of his life, as he hung on the cross, dying as a despised criminal, he cried out to God, his Father, these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What an extraordinary thing for the Son of God to say. But those words of shock and anger came as Jesus really did experience his father turning his back on him 
as he had to bear the cost of the evil of human rebellion against God. We haven't got time to go into all that that means, but the incredible truth was that Jesus was punished by God so that we might be forgiven and accepted. That cry was a cry of grief. The loss of the closest relationship imaginable. Jesus the Son being rejected by the Father. At that moment he was utterly alone. Hated, rejected, despised by his own people. And when he turned to his Father, he was met by nothing but cold silence. Jesus knows grief and he promises to be with us through it. Knowing that is the key. It's not a silver bullet that takes away our sadness. It didn't suddenly want me to make me want to sing the songs in church. But I believe it is the key to surviving grief. Grief can destroy us. That's the threat of grief. As it did destroy Jim. But if we keep holding on to a belief that God is good, that he also went through grief, that he walks through it with us, that can keep us holding on to him until eventually we come out the other side. Let me finish off trying to describe what that looked like for me. For weeks, it might have even been, might even have been months after Owen died, I was a bit like a four-year-old again. I couldn't focus on anything more than a few minutes at a time. Reading the Bible properly, listening to sermons, I, I, I just couldn't really do it. I wish I could say that my grief deepened my relationship with God. Perhaps it did. But going through it, a lot of the time I just felt numb. I just felt like I went through the motions to get through each day. My prayers were more bursts of desperate groans than any kind of recognisable praying. But looking back, despite the way I was, and it was all God's grace, I claim no credit for this. God held on to me through seeing tiny glimpses of his goodness especially through friends who were patient and loving, who gave us room to grieve as we needed to. And even though I had pretty much no energy or discipline to read the Bible, God reminded me that he is good. Like Job, I could still say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he also reminded me of his goodness to me in the past which was important because in the middle of grief, often we're just not in a place to see God's goodness to us there and then. All I had to go on was memory of what I knew God had done for me in the past and his goodness to me. I want to finish off with a few verses of another psalm, Psalm 136, because I think this is very helpful for applying to us when we're in the middle of grief and suffering. Here's just a few verses from that psalm. Psalm 136, 
from verse 13. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. The psalmist is jogging the memory of God's people to remember the great act of deliverance where he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, out of misery and slavery and eventually into the promised land. He's reminding them how important it is to remember because sometimes all we have to hold on to is a memory of how good God has been to us. When we're in the the midst of grief, all we have to hold on to is a memory of God's kindness to us to remind us, oh yes, God really has been good to me. And then to help us to do that, the psalmist repeats that phrase, his love endures forever, his love endures forever. By verse 26, that almost sounds a bit much. Every verse, his love endures forever. We feel like saying, okay, okay, God, I've got it. But sometimes it takes that. Some days it would take me not 26 times, but a 100 reminders that God is still good. He still loves me. He's not punishing me. Even though I might not feel like it, his steadfast love really does endure forever. Today we've seen that grief is a right and natural response to the evil of death and loss that has come into our world. But as as we grieve, there's a threat that comes with it. It can drive people away from us and it can drive us away from God as well. But where God wants to take us in grief is to see that he is good, that he is with us and that he has known grief as well and that he walks through it with us. Now, as I said at the beginning, I acknowledge that I'm not an expert at grief. I don't pretend to know the answers. You may be here today feeling like you need some help. Perhaps professional help walking through grief. We can't offer that to you, but what we can offer you is a listening ear and someone to pray with. And Melissa will talk a little bit more about that in a second. If you do want to talk to someone about that, please don't hesitate to come and talk to us. Amen.